Today we're looking at the film 13 Days, the Kevin Costner flick from 2001 about the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was suggested to me by one of my patrons, Liz Rivard, and I decided to bump up the schedule because a new book is coming out in April about the Cuban crisis, and I'm very keen to read it because it's by Seri Ploke, who wrote Chernobyl, a history of a tragedy a couple of years ago. So let's go back to 1962 and those terrifying 13 days. The podcast will be done over two parts, covering the crisis and the resolution of the crisis. Days was quite well received. I've looked at reviews online and yeah, people were generally quite kind. Most of the plaudits seemed to go to Bruce Greenwood for his excellent portrayal of JFK. But sadly, we <laughs> see most of the action through the eyes of his political advisor, O'Donnell, who's played by Big Kevin Costner, with an atrocious Boston accent, sounding exactly like Mayor Quimby. So a quick recap of the story, although I'm assuming most, if not all, of my listeners know how it goes. The Cuban Missile Crisis was the closest we've ever come to nuclear war, although 1983 was also a close shave. Spy planes going over Cuba spotted something strange down there on the ground. They snapped their photos and zipped back to Washington. When the pictures were developed and presented to JFK, he thought the strange shapes on the ground looked like a football field. But the photos were showing that nuclear missiles were being installed on the island of Cuba. Just a hop, skip and a jump from the American coast. The important thing is that at this stage, the missiles were not yet operative. Neither Castro nor Khrushchev could have pressed a button and launched a nuclear attack from Cuba. Not at this point. So, JFK's task was to nip this in the bud, stop this now before it goes any further, halt the process, get those things removed from the island before they become operational. And so he summons his men into the meeting room, and for the next agonising 13 days, they try out strategies, they argue and debate about what to do, they try to second-guess the Soviet response. And this, of course, is where the drama lies. Because there's no drama in wondering what will happen. We know what happens. We know the world was saved from nuclear holocaust. There was no conflict. The excitement lies in the intricate, 
agonizing details of how it was done and in seeing how a lesser president might have allowed himself to be bullied or pressured into some spectacularly wrong decisions. The group who meets to decide her fate over the next fortnight is given the name XCOM. Sounds very fancy and futuristic, but it just means executive committee. It's almost a disappointment when you learn that's what XCOM means. And in these meetings, on screen at least, JFK is largely quiet and thoughtful, sitting in his chair with the special padding on it for his terrible back pain which plagued him for most of his life. The reason he's so quiet and thoughtful is because he's there to make a decision, of course, on what to do. And so he must absorb information and advice and arguments from his men, from XCOM. And he finds that there are two real choices. One is to blockade Cuba to stop any more Soviet ships entering the island with yet more weaponry. The other choice is military action. An airstrike to disable the missile sites, followed by an invasion of Cuba. The famous and peppery General Curtis LeMay is part of XCOM. At this point in his career, he's the Chief of Staff of the US Air Force. LeMay, of course helped mastermind the bombing of German and Japanese cities in World War II, and was no shrinking violet. His popular images of a cigar-chomping tough guy, always up for a good scrap. And that is indeed how he is portrayed in 13 Days. He wants to roll up his sleeves and bomb the hell out of Cuba. General May, do you truly believe that's our best course of action? Mr. President, I believe it is the only course of action. America is in danger. Those missiles are a threat to our bomber bases and the safety of our nuclear deterrent. Now, without our deterrent, there's nothing to keep the enemy from choosing general nuclear war. It's our duty, sir, our responsibility to the American people to take out those missiles and return stability to the strategic situation. The big red dog is digging in our backyard, and we are justified in shooting him. Remember, LeMay is alleged to have said of the North Vietnamese that we'd bomb them back to the Stone Age. JFK apparently found him distasteful and is quoted as saying, I don't want that man near me again, after hearing one of LeMay's typical speeches. The author Michael Dobbs seems to sum LeMay up perfectly in his book about Cuba, One Minute to Midnight. He says that, LeMay was the man you would want by your side when the fighting had started, but not in the delicate decision-making beforehand. Not when you're trying to avoid war, when you're trying to prolong or preserve peace. You want him when everything's gone to hell, but not beforehand. (laughs) So LeMay and his supporters... Understandably, I suppose, want military action. They are military men. We can't blame them, can we? So they want to charge ahead with military action, despite the (laughs) unthinkable risks of a nuclear retaliation. 
Kennedy, instead of charging ahead down one avenue, tries to treat it like a game of chess. If we do that, then what will the Soviets do? If I do this, what's their move? If I go that way, where do they go? He reasons, quite sensibly of course, that if the Americans go ahead and attack Cuba, then the Soviets might attack Berlin in a tit-for-tat move. Again, looking at Dobbs' book, LeMay was derisive. He said, no, Mr. President, the opposite will happen. If you don't attack Cuba, then the Soviets will think you're soft and they'll be more likely to attack Berlin. The more calm and reasonable members of XCOM were pushing for, for a blockade and, of course, that's what Kennedy opts for. But it was seen by the military guys as the soft option, the easy option. And there were snide mutterings about Munich and appeasement. Two things we must remember here in talking about Munich. JFK's father, of course, was American ambassador to Britain in 1938 and was in favour of appeasement. So the mutterings about Munich must have stung the president. Also, and this was something I forgot, when the events of the Cuban Missile Crisis were occurring, Munich was still a very fresh and recent memory. When we think now of Chamberlain and Munich and appeasement, we imagine Chamberlain in a top hat, uh, descending from his rickety old plane and talking about peace for our time. It seems like shaky black and white footage from another world, another age. But when XCOM were sitting around the table, that was only 24 years in the past. That's nothing. 24 years from today was 1997. The year of the new Labour landslide. So that was nothing. That was five minutes ago, surely. (laughs) So for JFK to hear whisperings of Munich and appeasement... It must have been especially painful, as it was recent, fresh, but also a very personal dig at his father. But JFK toughs it out. He withstands all the pressure from those men in uniform, and thank God he does, because he makes the right choice. He goes for the blockade of Cuba. The restrained and reasonable action. There are Soviet ships thundering through the oceans right now towards the Caribbean and when they reach the blockade line, they will either stop where they'll be boarded for inspection by the Americans or they'll ignore the blockade, charge right through and then what? Having made his decision to go with the blockade, JFK leaves XCOM, but if I'm remembering correctly, the camera goes with him. It's usually either on the Kennedy brothers or on O'Donnell, Costner's character. What the film doesn't show us is that, and I might be wrong in this, but I don't believe it shows us that after Kennedy left the room and the angry, war-hungry generals were free to let off steam and have a bit of a workplace gossip, as we all do, 
their conversations were still being recorded. Kennedy had had the room bugged so that he could have full records of every single word that was said in those XCOM meetings. Dobbs book tells us that the generals left unsupervised, cheered on Curtis LeMay for his impertinence towards the president. You, you pulled the rug right out from under him, chuckles the commandant of the Marine Corps, listening to their boasts and their crowing and their backslapping. JFK noted that those military men crying for war could do so freely because if they got it, and got it wrong, no one would be around to realise it. Before instigating the blockade around Cuba, Kennedy changes its name. A blockade, after all, is a, a tool of war. And the last thing we want is war. That's the whole point. We're trying to avoid nuclear war. So they decide to call it a quarantine. A nice, clean, healthy, unaggressive name. They have thrown up a quarantine around Cuba. And they will check the cargo of any ships who are seeking to pass the quarantine. There's some um, light relief here when they're discussing how careful they need to be when ships approach the quarantine. They can't just pile aboard a Soviet ship, accusing them of carrying missiles, only to find it's a, a mercy ship carrying baby food. How silly would the Americans look if they start harassing a ship full of little jars of mushy peas and carrots for... Call me babies. During the XCOM meetings, when they're all agonising over what decision to make and whether it's the right one, and when they're gaming the thousand and one ways it could all go wrong, JFK says to his brother, Bobby, There's no wise old man. It's just us. Now, I loved that line. It echoes the most touching scene in When the Wind Blows, another great nuclear war film, of course. And it's one where Jim is reminiscing about the Blitz and how fun it was, how exciting. And he reels off the names of all the great war heroes from the Second World War. And in his imagination, the ghost of Monty appears in the room alongside him. But then his wife calls through from the kitchen... I don't think it's Monty in charge now, dear. So who's in charge now? Now that we're in the cold and personal nuclear age. It's not Monty now. It's not Churchill now. Who's in charge now, dear? And Jim doesn't know. It's all faceless men these days. Or maybe it's all done by computer. Who knows, dear? And then he suddenly realises that he's all alone. All his sentimental blitz memories that have kept him warm throughout the years. All his old-fashioned British war heroes. They've all died and gone away. And the ghost of Monty claps him sadly on the back and recedes into the darkness. Just leaving Jim alone. There's no Monte, there's no Churchill to guide the nation through the nuclear war that is coming. 
So JFK's line about there being no wise men, just us, has that same forbidding message. Facing the nuclear threat, you're alone in the dark and no one is coming to help you. You need to work it out for yourself. And so, let me be as sentimental as Jim Bloggs was here and say, thank God it was JFK who was in charge then and not, well, some other president. Now, as our team are carefully making plans for the quarantine and trying to open up communication with the Soviets, (laughs) incredibly, a nuclear bomb goes off. Yes, as mad as it seems, nuclear testing was still going ahead during the Cuba crisis. Now, I know that nuclear testing takes a lot of planning and to cancel one at short notice would be a real pain in the neck, but lads, come on! At the height of the crisis, at the most tense and nerve-shredding day, 27th of October, nicknamed Black Saturday, On that day, as the world held its breath, out in the Pacific, the Americans exploded a nuclear bomb. And, uh, quite appropriately, that bomb was nicknamed Calamity. The Calamity test was part of Operation Dominic, which was um, a series of 31 tests. And these had been arranged as a kind of socket to them response to the Soviets, who had, the year before, tested quite a large bomb, the Tsar Bomba, the biggest bomb of them all. So, in response, as the rules of the Cold War dictated, America had to try and match them. So, we got Operation Dominic, whose tests yielded a total of 31 megatons, making it the largest American nuclear test series. The Cold War, of course, was a a race, a contest, and yet still I find it crazy that during the most dangerous moment of human history, that Black Saturday, nuclear bombs were still popping and fizzing on the horizon. Most of the action and tension is, of course, taking place in the XCOM meetings. This is, after all, a political thriller, but we need to give our Kevin Costner character an excuse for hanging around, don't we? He's playing an advisor, and according to the records, he wasn't a particularly important man uh, relative to the rest of them. He was present at XCOM, but was never really involved in the cut and thrust of the decision-making. The film brings him forward into the limelight so he can give us, the ordinary viewer at home, a window into what was happening. We become the guy sitting at the back, just as O'Donnell was. Another benefit to that technique is that Costner's character, not being a superstar, has an ordinary home life. He goes home to kids, wife, school report cards, the dinner table... And these scenes, these family scenes, if a a bit on the schmaltzy side, at least give us an excuse to get out of the airless XCOM meetings and the formal setting of the White House. 
to have a little peep at normal life, which, as you know, is my main area of interest. It's the social history of living under the nuclear threat rather than the political or military side. Now, the most revealing scene, I would say, of Costner's off-duty moments isn't when he's at home, it's when he's on his way home and he passes a church in Washington which has a sign outside saying, and this is at the height of the crisis, uh, the sign says that they are open 24 hours to hear confession. Costner joins the long, silent queue outside. That packed far more of a punch for me than any weepy family scenes. So how were ordinary people reacting to the Cuba crisis in America? I'll read you an article here from the New York Times from Friday, October the 26th. That's the day before Black Saturday, of course. Saying that there was no panic buying going on. That's always the most um, typical scene that we find in Hollywood uh, blockbusters about the, the coming apocalypse. There's always scenes of panic buying, either that or scenes of uh, jammed motorways as people try and flee the cities. We didn't see either of those in this film. And that's to the film's credit, of course. They didn't reach for any of the clichés. And indeed, the New York Times reports that there was no panic buying going on. I'll read to you here. It says, Water buying housewives, tired-eyed government officials, and a big demand for transistor radios were the chief signs of crisis in Washington today. All over town, the standard greeting was not, How are you? But what do you hear? It was not hard to tell what was on people's minds. Radio stations were giving out instructions for stocking fallout shelters and basements and a lot of people were responding. But stores reported no real panic buying in response to the Cuban crisis. The most sought-after item in town was bottled water, which was on the list of purchases urged by civil defence authorities. Several stores reported being sold out of one-gallon containers retailing at 49 cents. Another fast-selling item was pemmican, a raisin and nut food concentrate with 400 calories to a pocket-sized can. The article goes on, other items in unusual demand were five-gallon water cans, mess kits, halazone tablets for for sterilising water, 25-cent cans of rust-proof water, key rations and small alcohol stoves. The article goes on, an electronic shop reported the sale of six family radiation kits. But a drug company said it had had no increase in sales of tranquilizers. In most ways, the mood of Washington appeared to be not far from business as usual. So there, that takes us up to the height of the crisis. And next week we'll look at how the film portrays its resolution and how accurate it was. Before I go, let me thank two new patrons. There are no miserable ads on this podcast, and never will be, because I'm funded by donations through Patreon. And two new people have signed up this week, and I'm very grateful to them. So thank you to Anna Brotherton and Chris Sunman. And a shout out to existing patrons Hack Green, Nuclear Bunker, Amanda Lee, Arika, Andreas Rowland, and Ben Taylor. If you want to give a monthly donation to the podcast please go to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or on Facebook at Nuclear Britain. So thank you everyone for listening. I'll be back next week and we'll look at the second half of 13 Days.